Hey, and welcome to episode 67. Allow me to throw you all of the gratitude in my movie-loving soul for your willingness to take time out of your morning, your day, or evening, as the case may be, to click on that little triangle pointing to the right to have a listen to this podcast. Whether this is your first time tuning in, or your 67th, thank you. My name is Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. This episode is a week delayed in coming out, but you know how it is, sometimes life just gets in the way. But you're not tuning in to hear my schedule, so let's eliminate the fluff and get right down to it. In 1897, an Irish author by the name of Bram Stoker published his novel Dracula. After he passed away 15 years later in 1912, his widow Florence inherited his estate, including the rights to the book. Fast forward about eight or nine years later, in the early 1920s, a German film company wanted to make a feature adaptation. But when they couldn't agree on a financial arrangement, she stood up and walked. The filmmakers looked at each other, said, Well, that sucks and proceeded to make their silent vampire movie anyway. To avoid copyright infringement, or so they thought, they changed the names of the characters. Count Dracula became Count Orlock, for example. They changed the novel's setting of the Victorian age to the early 1800s, the age of the Brothers Grimm. They tweaked the ending to include a marriage that has apparently never been consummated. Say what? But that's about it. Their film, Nosferatu, debuted in 1922. Florence, properly mightily honked off, enlisted the help of the British Society of Authors to press a legal case, which they did. The legal war went on for three years, and by the time both platoons put down their legal weapons, the upshot was that Prana, the studio that made the film, went bankrupt. So the Merry Widow never saw any financial restitution. But she did run a victory lap when the ruling came that all existing prints be destroyed, but, much like the vampire tiptoed and flew quite literally like a bat out of hell into international territory, so too did several prints of the film. Thus, the special edition Blu-ray DVD release that I so proudly forever hold in my grubby little paws came to be. My guests on this episode are making their second appearance, DJ Nick and Zan from the Gold Standard Oscars podcast, joining me to celebrate the 100th birthday of this cinematic paragon. Together with their third co-host, Rachel, they previously came in for a look at the Jurassic Park franchise in episode 61. Rachel was unavailable to return this time, but hopefully next time she can. But if the idea of a 100-year-old silent movie results in an apprehensive scream of no! Then behold the words of actress Lauren Bacall. It's not an old movie, if you haven't seen it. So grab your cross, cover your neck, surround yourself with clothes of garlic, and let the sun shine in as I bring on Nick and Zan. This talk is pre-recorded, so once it wraps up, stick around because there'll be the usual poll results and listen to trivia segment with shoutouts. And of course, let me play fair and issue a spoiler alert now. DJ Nick, Zan, welcome to Silver Screeners, and thank you for taking the time out of your day to join me to talk about the 100th anniversary of Nosferatu. Oh, it's definitely a pleasure. Thank you for having us, Frank. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. I'm happy to be here, especially in the beginning of spooky movie season. This is a great way to kick it off. It's a great time of the year, isn't it? Oh, it's the <laughs> most wonderful time of the year. <laughs> Not um, to mention, I was almost a Halloween baby because I'll be turning 40 on the 29th of October. And right. uh, as I actually mentioned to you, uh, Frank, funny story, I was actually due October 31st 
But my mom said I was just so wanting to be born that I was born two days early. <laughs> you probably want to celebrate Halloween. So, yes, I wanted to give you both a chance to introduce yourselves and to talk about your shows. So, Zan, why don't we begin with you, your projects, your social information, anything you want to share? Okay. Um, I'm Zan Sprouse, and I'm sure that uh, your listeners have heard you talk to me and Nick and our friend Rachel on our podcast, Gold Standard, the Oscars podcast, where we talk about every best picture since the inception of the best picture Oscar. And... Unfortunately, I'll be missing a little bit this month due to personal stuff. So thankfully, Nick and Rachel are taking up my slack, and I really appreciate that. I also do two podcasts with our friend Charles Skaggs. I do Ghostwood, the Twin Peaks podcast, where we discuss all things Twin Peaks and David Lynch and all things tangentially related to Twin Peaks and David Lynch. So creepy, atmospheric, horrific movies are definitely my wheelhouse. (laughs) Um, Charles and I also do Drunk Cinema, where it's exactly what it sounds like. We enjoy our favorite movies over our favorite adult beverages and we record it for your entertainment and posterity because i usually don't remember the last half hour of that podcast and we are starting off spooky season our last our most recent episode was hellraiser so if you're into 80s horror which i am you can listen you can listen to our episode of hellraiser social media you can find me as udinax19 on instagram tiktok and twitter that's you know what I do in my uh, podcast spare time. When it comes to me, folks, as uh, as uh, Zan was saying, yes, uh, I have the honor and pleasure of be, of podcasting with her and with with Rachel Friend on a regular basis on Gold Standard, of course. And when I'm not in the Gold Standard Theater, I can be found hosting the radio show Whiskey and Cigarettes, where we play today's country, traditional country and everything else in between. And you can find more information about that at whiskeyandcigarettesshow.com. Podcast-wise, if superhero movies are your speed, I can be found on Happiness in Darkness, a superhero movie podcast, where both Frank and Zan have joined me to discuss uh, their, their favorite movies indeed. And uh, speaking of Charles Skaggs, if you are into superhero TV shows, Myself and Charles can be found on the Fandom Zone podcast, where we're currently reviewing episodes of Sandman and She-Hulk. Okay, I know what I'm downloading next. (laughs) That's good stuff. Both great, great stuff. So, Nosferatu. Worldwide premiere on February 16th, so we're maybe about eight months late with the 100th anniversary, but it's the same year, so it's all good. It premiered worldwide February 16th in the Netherlands at The Hague, and it's a very, emphasis on the very, a very loose adaptation of Bram Stoker's novel Dracula, published in 1897. Is it that loose? I mean... (laughs) (laughs) See, that's the million-dollar question. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's like we... I was watching this and I'm like, you know what? You can slap different names on these characters, but this is Dracula. <laughs> I was I was talking about the actor who plays Hooder in this. And I made a I made a comment and I said, this actor kind of reminds me of Roman Polanski, just visually reminds me of Roman Polanski. And my husband and my husband said, who is that? Is that is that Harker? I'm like, not not in this movie. No, don't call him that. He's not Harker. <laughs> you know, to use a Simpsons reference, it's like we're original characters. Yeah, yeah, it's like we're, we're original characters, like Ronald Rouse and Model yeah, Ronald Rouse and yeah, it's the shinning. Do you want to get sued? Yeah, it's it's loosely based in the sense that like it's totally based. <laughs> that whole story is just I don't know. It's just really it's both fascinating, frustrating, confusing. We're all film buffs here. 
So we all appreciate all of the hard work and all of the artistic vision on the part of the cast, the crew of any production, well, most productions. Had it not been for piracy, we never would have seen this movie. So th there is the there is the irony. It's, this movie is known. To, we know about the existence of this movie because of piracy. Exactly. And we are extremely lucky to still have this movie because of piracy. And it's such a different situation these days, I think. I think, well, first of all, there's so many lawyers these days that there's no way you could have been like, wait, didn't I read this book? Nope. Nope. That guy had a different name. And there were uh, more women in that story. And uh, <laughs> the, the madman was, he liked spiders, not mosquitoes. I mean, there's enough like this that anybody who reads this is like, I think we need to call the stokers and make sure they're cool with this before we do <laughs> anything. Even in that sense, this movie, I think it says a lot about how this movie was received. I, I think most German expressionism is, is ahead of its time. Yeah. But how Bram Stoker's widow is like, nope, nope, get rid of it. Rather than like, nope. Nope, I want 80% of these profits, which is, I think, probably what would have happened now when we have lawsuits like this. Like, I'm thinking about the world of music, something like when Dire Straits does the song that kind of sounds like a police song, Sting is like, oh, no worries, just give me some money for that. <laughs> or, or you know, you know, Coolio, rest in peace, Coolio, gets angry with Weird Al. Wheeler's like, no, that's fine. Here's a check. That's how we settle, settle this. That was not what happened at the time. It was... It was, no, 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 you made this movie without my permission. Burn them all. <laughs> it's kind of like, uh, it. like Bob Wire and Casablanca. I mean, Bob Wire, as terrible as a movie as it is, it's literally Casablanca. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's clear that's what it is, but I, I don't know if they ever got sued for that. But I'm like... I think saw Barb Wire. When I sat down to watch Bob Wire, I'm like, wait a minute. So Pamela Anderson is Humphrey Bogart? Okay, but yeah, yeah, it was very weird. But yes, well, there's a lot of other two names. I'm sorry, go ahead. You never thought you'd say in the same mouthful. Yeah, you <laughs> yes. never thought you'd put those exactly. Same. Or if you, or if you think about the movie Spaceballs, <laughs> we, we joke a lot. We 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 think about the movie Spaceballs. It's like, oh, it's a sci-fi parody. There, there, it's a Star Wars thing, and then there's Planet of the Apes, and then there's this, and there's that. That movie is it happened one night. Oh yes, and. Mm. <laughs> That that there's there's one <laughs> I never thought of that. Yeah, it's it 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 it's you know the two people who hate each other while they're traveling wind up loving each other, and you have that situation where there's homage, and then there's flat out this is legit this story, <laughs> and I think that's the problem here, is that you're watching it and you're like, yeah, I know it's gonna happen. Okay, he's all right, he's going to go over there and he's going to try and make a deal and he's going to wake up and there's going to be stuff on his neck and he's going to, that his wife's going to go a little crazy. Okay, there's not a, a friend, there's just a wife. So they, they take out some characters, but you're like, I know how this is going to end. <laughs> well, or another example is, of course, Battle Royale and the Hunger Games. Yeah. Which, of course, is a big yeah. one. Yes, yeah. So, yeah, there's that fine line between homage and we're, we're just changing some names around. Yeah. You know, and that's... It, it is it you're right it is technically loosely based but it's not that loose <laughs> not that loose at all no well they tried to settle they tried to give uh florence stoker a, a check and she was not satisfied with the amount so she said nope like you said yeah no no no. we're not doing that you, you can't you got to burn this and so whoever made a copy and kept it bless you you know indeed 
It's the, the, those same those same people that had the parents who were video files back in the seventies and had the wherewithal to to tape the Star Wars holiday special off of television. Yes. Thank you for rescuing this from us. And we have there are so there are so many movies that are just from this era that are just lost, just absolutely lost, either because they were forgotten and they're nitrate and they're liquid now or this kind of thing. And just the fact that we have something like this that is such an important piece of cinema, in my opinion, is thank you. Thank you, bootleggers. Indeed, I mean, what what a movie! I mean, I this I think this movie literally did left definitely jump started the vampire genre in general. I mean, you you then go ahead and see anything any other vampire movies that came out. This was pretty much, I think, the the granddaddy of them all. And uh, you know, think that now it's been a hundred years. It literally blows my mind, to be honest. And uh, I mean, and I've seen tons of vampire movies, but to this day, this is still my all time favorite. I mean, I love. I love um, Francis Ford Coppola with what he did with Dracula and, uh, and a couple of other ones. Interview with the Vampires, another big favorite of mine. But I think what Murnau did with this was just insanely good. And uh, you can see how many homages have been have been done to this, so, you know, to this movie. So, yeah, it's definitely up there. I mean, I think it definitely deserves to be classified as a legend. You know, you were talking earlier about off air, Frank, about, you know, German Expressionism. I put it right up there with The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. I mean, these two movies literally spawned a genre. Nosferatu is without a doubt the best, you know, I agree with you, the best vampire movie ever made. And I've also seen a lot. I've seen a lot of the Draculas. I've seen Shadow of the Vampire, which we can get into that one, too since that's a not even a homage i mean this is just a fictionalized retelling of the making of, of nosferatu but nosferatu as far as the vampire genre goes there's something about it that's very atmospheric that i think so many other film adaptations of any vampire story lack i think really that as far as the bella lugosi dracula film goes the word in the cinematic street is is that everybody has the same general opinion that although it may be a landmark in american cinema it's not the greatest movie ever made it's very stodgy it's very stagey it feels very unnatural it feels like you're watching a videotaped theatrical performance which is fine but you're not going to get the atmosphere so if you've ever seen the Spanish version of Dracula that was filmed concurrently with the Bela Lugosi, that mm. one, I think, has so much more going for it, just in terms of the choices that the editor makes and that the d- directorial acting choices, costume choices, it was just, it was much more fluid than the 1931. And I know I'm getting off on a tangent here, but despite all of that, Frank Langella as Dracula. Oh, yeah. Gary Oldman as Dracula. I mean, all of these incarnations, Max Schreck, for whatever reason, was just blessed with this ability to turn his eyes into the camera. And even in the year 2022, a full century later, you can still get creeped out by that. Oh, very much so. And I think, and I love the fact that uh, Tim Burton evidently loved this movie so much that in uh, Batman Returns, the villain is called Max Shrek, which is clearly a homage to to this character. So, and I think obviously if Tim Burton, you know, I'm sure he was very much inspired by uh, German expressionism when it comes to the, just the way his movies are paced and the way the imagery he uses. And this was, as I mentioned before, huge for that. And what I actually thought was interesting when it came to this particular film was a lot of people, you know, a lot of you know, film students and what have you, when they talk about this film, they talk about the fear of the other and the fact of, because you know, this is the Weimar Republic in Germany at this point. 
and uh, obviously um, anti-Semitism is on the rise and what have you. And a lot of people have almost seen this as, as Dracula being an anti-Semitic story because we don't want foreigners. And some people have even said Nosferatu looks like a Jew in the sense with the elongated nose and the fingers and what have you. But funnily enough, a lot of people have almost mentioned the contrary because Murnau was actually not anti-Semitic whatsoever, and he did not want to tell an anti-Semitic story. And funnily enough, he was actually a homosexual. And so he was being homosexual himself. He was also felt the repression and so would kind of stand by the Jews for their for being marginalized. And so I have to definitely, as a Jew myself, Murnau is a hero to me for that reason, because where a lot of Germans were going towards anti-Semitism, he was going against the grain and went just to tell a horror story. That's the impression I got anyway. There's just so much in this movie that uses these, this new art form film in ways we haven't done before. You know, Frank, like you were saying, so many, and we've talked about this a lot on Gold Standards, that so many of these older movies, they look like you're filming a play. And German Expressionism does not. I mean, yes, some of the sets look like they're sets that you would find on stage, but not with things like close-ups of rats and, you know, the 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 shadow work in this movie. I was watching this and I'm like, the, the impact that this movie had across so many things, the scene where he's where he's reaching out for her and you just see the shadow of his hand. I guarantee you that's where Buffy the Vampire Slayer got, Slayer got it for the episode with the gentleman. That's where that's the influence for that i mean the influence that the filmmaking of this movie had is so far reaching that we don't even think about it until we're watching we're like oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah you see so many things in this movie and it just really teaches you what you can do with this medium there was so much creativity going on in this pre-war post-war pre-war period <laughs> you know we had it at the turn of the century with georges melier in france and then this post-war period in Germany where they didn't have anything. I mean, they're making these movies on their own because they can't get movies. People are like, whatever, money's tight, but what else are we doing? Let's go see, let's go see movies. And the creativity involved is, is so impressive that when you do see something like a 1931 Dracula, you're like disappointed because you know, as good as Bella Lugosi is, and Bella Lugosi is what saves that movie and is what makes it a classic movie. But there's not, you know, there, there's not visual storytelling going on the way you started to see later in things like The Wolfman or Frankenstein. I'm thinking of other universal horror movies. There's not the visual storytelling that you get in this movie with the, you know, the whole idea. Again, another influence that this had is on is on something like a. Uh, something like Phantasm, where you have just some guy walking around with a coffin under his arm, <laughs> filled with plague-riddled dirt, just walking around like, okay, here's this coffin, here's my Wednesday coffin, here's my Thursday coffin, you know. And, you know, that idea of just this creepy guy walking through town just carrying a coffin by himself like it's nothing. And then you're going to shoot that from afar, and you see him do it, and then you have the close-up of them on the ship, and this sort of non- and of course, it's a silent movie, so it's going to be non-dialogue driven storytelling. But this idea of using the camera to tell your story rather than using the camera to just show you where your people are going, which is kind of what Dracula did. It's it's sort of sad when you see movies that don't take this kind of advantage of what the art form allows, especially when you know what can be done with it. And even in some of the other vampire movies, probably my favorite vampire movie is well not my favorite but in my top five is probably horror of dracula christopher lee is my favorite is my favorite dracula there's such a different feel to that 
you know, and that's that's another interesting thing about this movie. There's not like the sexual thing going on with Dracula like we get in these later movies, especially in the uh, Werner Herzog remake from the 70s. It's Klaus Kinski and Isabella Algiani. And so it's a very, very sexually charged. Uh, Frank Langella, same thing, very sexually charged. Or Coppola as well, of course. Coppola, for sure, for sure, with that scene with Sadie Frost. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All I have to say is Sadie Frost, Coppola's Dracula, and everybody. Knows. <laughs> so that that idea of Dracula as just a monster, the whole slow burn of like, you know, hey, we're not going to have any more ships coming in because there's a plague, and oh, now there's one guy left on this ship. And I love that story about how when you're reading the log, somebody from lower decks is sick. He keeps talking about some mysterious unknown passenger, and you're like, oh. Count Orlock is getting up in the middle of the night and just killing these people, no matter how many rats are around. This is very different than how Dracula sort of became. I do think that the that that Hammer did add a lot of that sexuality to Dracula. But when you see what you can do with a vampire story, and then you watch 1931's Bela Lugosi Dracula, you're like, this was a waste of a Bela Lugosi. <laughs> There's so much more we could have done here. Again, like I said, I think I think Universal figured that out. There was more you could do with the camera, you know, so they started having monster movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon. We're like, hey, let's try this 3D thing on, on our monster movies. But this one has an influence that's far reaching. Like I said, you know, there's movies that aren't even vampire stories that you're thinking, oh, I've seen that and that. I've seen that over there. Like I said before, we're just really lucky that this movie survived at all. <laughs> a whole new generation was introduced to this movie because of that episode of SpongeBob. I do have to give a shout out to that. <laughs> that I have not seen and that I will have to find because that sounds amazing. Oh, go on YouTube. It's there. Okay. Oh, good point there for sure, Frank. And I guess also, I suppose, Salem's Lot as well from Stephen King, because he's clearly homaging, mm. I think, this with, very with yeah, Salem's Lot. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that whole, that whole, and, you know, we, Max Shrek blinks once in this whole movie. That's inhuman. And that's, that is honestly, you know how they, you see those things like, what's your favorite conspiracy theory? One of my favorite conspiracy theories is that Max Shrek is actually Alfred Abel. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a good one because they kind of look alike. And did we ever see them in the same room together? Not really. I don't know. Mm, no, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. Fritz Lang is post-German Expressionism, but boy, did German Expressionism lay an egg in his brain because he's uh, very much with that with a wonderful camera work in very elaborate sets, but not just not just a steady camera on a set. And that's another thing in Caligari, too, where you have, you know, it's interesting. We've got a couple of German Expressionism movies that are classics that were remade later and that were very sexually charged. And, and Caligari is another one. If you've ever seen The Cabinet of Caligari with uh, Glynis Johns, it's very, very sexual and very erotic. But the original Silent, you know, with all the, you know, with all the crazy looking buildings and all the shadows and him walking through, you know, it, and just the you know, it's maddening to watch this movie about madness. Shadow work, it's lighting, it's set design, it's performances, it's makeup. I mean, the makeup work in this movie where you have just everything from <laughs> everything from our quote unquote Renfield character to our sick captain. And I, I love that where they're just pushing him up and he falls and they push him up again. Like, is he dead? Is he what's going on with these guys? And Max himself. How does he get anything done with those hands? How does anybody go to his house and be like, yeah, I want to sell you some property near my neighborhood. I think you're a good you're a good choice to be around children in that, that I know. So, yeah, it's, yeah, there's so much that goes, you know, we were talking before about what you take away from a movie when you change it, when you cut it up or when you try and colorize it or do any sort of, you're, you're really not 
taking into account the artistry that went into making something look the way it does when you have something limited like nitrate film stock or no color film and you know this movie doesn't have animation but you know a, a lot of you know animation was one of the first things animation and color tinting was some of the first things that were done with film in the you know the turn of the century with the edison edison experiments <laughs> that he did with film but when you take away some of that stuff and unfortunately these these are the types of movies that we'll never see the whole thing things have been lost pieces have been lost you'll never see all of it but time cuts some things up when you don't even want them to but there's such an artistry to even just the concept of post-war germany making a movie is pretty impressive and anything you do to alter that really takes away from the artistry that it, you know the the old adage of necessity is the mother of invention very much so not i think i also to mention the fact that um when it came to the studio that produced this they were one of the few independent studios left at that point because in the 20s obviously the what was Germany in inverted commas at the time pretty much ate up all the studios and said, you're just going to make movies that promote the glory of our nation and do, you know, pro German movies. And these guys were pretty much like the only ones left who were kind of doing almost guerrilla films, if you will. So I have to say also kudos to them for, you know, being an independent studio and doing something like this. It just blows my mind. I think there is a lot about the production that is mind blowing. It was filmed in the summer of 21, almost entirely on location, which at the time was not too common, really. I mean, you had, you know, studio sets. And when it was filmed, I'm going to see if I can get this right. The art director, Alban Grau, he was an occultist. And there was somebody else. I think it was the screenwriter who also who also was an occultist. And they they, they were part of the team that put together this film studio Nick, that you were talking about. The film studio is called Prana, P-R-A-N-A. And that comes from the Sanskrit word for the Buddhist concept of sacred breath. When you have an audience 100 years later looking at this film, what you're looking at is a time capsule. It's a time capsule politically. It's a time capsule culturally. It's a time capsule artistically. Just in every possible way, this movie helps to define the era. It helps to define the area of the world where it was filmed, where it was produced. I will say that back in October of 2015, here in Boston, they had a screening of Nosferatu at the, the Boston Conservatory. They had an original score. It was a contest, I think it was, for music students in the city schools like BU and Emerson and places like that. They could compose original scores and then submit them. And I think there were three winners. And so the film was divided into thirds. So little snippets of the three winning scores were put into the film sitting in a balcony seat and it's a formal affair i mean we're talking you know people were dressed up people of course were dressed up as vampires too it was such a huge turnout and <laughs> and i kept thinking to myself all these people myself included and the friend i was with all these people are here to partake in the same viewing experience of a film that is not only at that point almost 100 years old and not only is it a silent movie but it's a silent movie from Germany. And these are people who live, if not in Massachusetts, at least in the surrounding areas. And I just think that is incredibly powerful for, for any art, really, you know, whether we're talking paintings or whether we're talking, you know, music. Or, I just think there is an incredible power in the art of filmmaking that that particular evening had on full display. 
just the fact that these were 21st century audiences and they're taking a look at a film made overseas by a studio that went bankrupt after it was released. So it's not as if it became what we would call today a franchise or a series or a serial or anything like that. There's something really magical about things like this that will stand the test of time. And, you know, Frank, like you were saying, don't forget, this is, you know, all those things going against this movie, finding an audience in the 21st century. Don't forget the fact that this movie was almost completely destroyed. So there's something about this movie that brought, it was able to bring itself back from the ashes, literally, to stand the test of time. And there's always been an audience and, and it, it this movie proves that there's always been an audience for something like this. People went to see, I mean, German expressionism was not like the MCU of its day or anything like that. It wasn't making billions of dollars in a month or something like that, but people were seeing this, they were understanding it, they were comprehending it. And this whole studio system concept of these movies are too, you know, of anything being too weird for an audience is like, is there though? I mean, there's if, if somebody thought to make it, probably somebody wants to watch it. And I think this is a good example of that because this movie is scary, it is creepy, it's not pretty. You know, even though we have our young couple who are, <laughs> you know, who are supposed to be this this love story, you have the the you know, the couple you're supposed to root for. Yeah, maybe they're young and attractive, but they look scared all the time. I mean, they don't look they don't look happy about anything, you know. Ellen is constantly freaking out. Like I hear him over the seas. I can't wait till he comes back to me. So many people out there discount movies like this. Like you said, it's old, it's black and white, it's silent, you know, it's weird. People aren't gonna get it or aren't gonna want to see this. That is just that is just not true. This type of movie proves that that there's an audience for a spectacle like this. And I love that effect where he's just he's just there. He's about to suck her blood. And, oh, crap. It's Dawn. <laughs> Dead. <laughs> and that's I mean, and when you think about 1922, that's amazing. He's just gone. And then there's smoke in his place. And then all those scenes where he's like the ghostly image. That's impressive when you think, you know, if you were to tell a kid today, like a 12 year old, like, OK, no computers. How would you do that? Very, I mean, very carefully, very carefully. And you only get so many. Okay, and you have to use film and you only get so much of it because it's really expensive. <laughs> so, yeah, movies, like, movies like this prove that the movie going audience is not just one thing, you know. Speaking of that climactic scene that you're talking about and the whole, you know, the impressive visual effects for the time. What's not commonly known is that it was Nosferatu, not Bram Stoker, who introduced the concept of sunlight killing a vampire. Because in Stoker's novel, it was only the sunlight only had the effect of weakening the vampire, not necessarily yeah. killing it. Right. That's right. And yeah. again, that's something that, you know, I'm, I'm starting to think about, the, you know, I'm starting to think about this. You guys are talking about your favorite vampire movies. And I really think mine is probably Near Dark. Mm. And I remember seeing Near Dark in high school and that imagery of the sun hitting you and just immediately you catch on fire. That you know, even as someone who'd seen a lot of vampire movies at the time, that was a great way of being like, oh, damn, like really sort of getting my attention for, for something in that in that sense. So, yeah, again, more in the more I think about this movie, the more I think what it influenced, you know, the whole idea of like literally catching on fire. I mean, we don't see him catch on fire, but we see him turn into smoke. Yeah, that you're right. That is not a Bram Stoker thing. So I guess is that like the vanilla ice defense where they, he says it's not the same song because he added an extra beat 
to uh, under pressure. <laughs> More than likely. <laughs> yeah. This is a this is a this is a better addition. I think I, I do I do like the idea of of sunlight killing the vampire. I think that's kind of fun. Yeah, very much. I think it's very much almost like what the Superman radio show did for Superman with Kryptonite, because then that obviously became law. And so I guess now it became part of vampire law. And I also want to mention here Alexander Granica's knock. Either you mentioned him a little bit here and there, Zan, as our Renfield character. Right. I mean, you, you could tell from like almost the beginning, this guy has got a couple of screws loose and there's a couple of sandwiches short of a picnic when he's yeah. like there. You have to go and buy this place in Transylvania. And he's got these crazed eyes and he just is like, this guy looks creepy from the get go. And I'm like, I'm, I'm surprised that, uh, that Thomas is almost not shocked that he's working for somebody like this who's like literally a crazed maniac. And then ends up becoming our Renfield because one of my favorite characters within the Dracula lore is Renfield. And I'm always oh, interested yeah. to see how he will be played and who will play him because he kind of walks in almost the both worlds because obviously he's, you know, Dracula's, uh, should we say, follower or first follower, if you will. He's literally one of his disciples. And so it's always interesting to see that. And the scene in the prison was so good. I, I mean, I was just like, wow, I can feel his torment. I can feel his craziness, his anticipation. It was beautiful. Yeah, that's a wonderful character. Granach does a great job with it. Um, he's no Tom Waits, but who is? Um, <laughs> Tom Waits is probably my favorite person who has done that character. He's that idea of, of, and this comes later in vampire lore too, that there's the vampire that kills you. And then there's the vampire that brings you on as a slave. And later on, it sort of becomes this vampire that gives you the gift of vampirism because it's the gift of immortality is what we figure out later on. It doesn't always go well. You know, you have someone like Renfield or you have someone like Kirsten Dunst's character in Interview with a Vampire that when she finds out that you're who cursed me to childhood for eternity, well, I'm going to keep these bodies warm and make you think they're fresh kills and I'm going to kill you. Immortality drives you mad and the inability to see the sun can drive you mad and the inability to eat actual food other than blood. I mean, that's that's lore we get later on. You see it very comedically, what we do in the shadows where the Nadia character is walking around like a fair at night. And he's like, try some popcorn. She's like, okay. And she just vomits like projectile vomits everywhere because vampires can't eat food. Or even something like True Blood, where they still want to make money off of the vampires at a bar. So they have this synthetic blood and you can choose your blood type because they can't they can't drink alcohol. They can't do any that they can't do anything. So this curse that feels like a gift that feels like a curse and Renfield's perfect with that, where it's like, yeah, you know, you maybe wanted a companion, but oh, it it went awry. And I, I do, I love in this movie where he's just with his hands, like trying to catch the mosquitoes. I, I did like the mosquito imagery in this movie because that's who else is a bloodsucker, you know, is is the mosquito. And, you know, I love that letter. It's like, yeah, the mosquitoes are crazy here. Two of them bit me right on my neck, like completely equal distant from each other. And very symmetrically it was amazing i don't know what happened with it I, i'm tired now so <laughs> that's transylvanian mosquitoes for you transylvanian mosquitoes yeah that and that's that's another thing too you know you have this whole story being you know taking place in transylvania romania had been a country for like 20 40 years 20 40 years something like that the the kingdom of romania there's such a germanic influence 
in Romania as to, you know, who's had what borders when and going all the all the way back to Dacian history. <laughs> there's there's Germanic influence. That idea of Romania being this weird dark place that like Germany kind of lost, I think is is another interesting xenophobic aspect to the story like we were talking before about how like the foreigners are bad and um the the ethnic looking people i'm using air quotes to do that the ethnic looking people are the bad ones and you know because you're right max shrek has big nose and renfield with the big eyebrows and all of the the really sort of you know especially in in western culture like big bushy eyebrows means weirdo foreigner there's so many socio-political aspects to the story too that i, I think would be a I mean, and we've talked about this before on Gold Standard about how these stories and these movies shouldn't be censored. You know, when we were talking about something like Yankee Doodle Dandy with the with the minstrel show, it's like we need to watch that so we can keep talking about like why is this a problem? Why do we feel uncomfortable watching it? Why did anyone think it was a good idea in the first place? You know, movies like this are or that sort of a thing like this this whole influence of like if we let the foreigners in we're going to have a plague i don't know where have i heard that in the last two years like <laughs> i don't know everywhere damn if i know yeah seriously yeah. it was very much a thing i guess obviously at the time as i said you know, obviously 1920s germany and everything else and the the fear of of foreigners and what have you so i mean it's part of the course but uh i'm glad that like i said that's more than now was not part of the we hate the foreigners and pure no. you know pure germany and everything else so i'm very glad and no surprise he left for the states as did uh, quite a few of the actors in this film as quite a few of them did and um for the best because germany apparently was really in the market for a scapegoat within the next decade so yes, indeed. it was probably <laughs> probably good good idea to get the hell out of there yeah, and that's that's an interesting thing too. That it's when we have stories like this, where the art world has always felt to me so such this bastion of tolerance, and this you know gang of misfits coming together to make something beautiful. That when you have bigoted artists, I'm always like, what is wrong with you? Agreed. Where do you? I will say that one thing that bothered me, disturbed me when I was doing research for this is that Greta Schroeder, who plays Ellen Hutter, uh, one of her final film appearances was in a propaganda film for the Third Reich in 1945. Yeah, you want to stay alive, you have to be in those. I mean, unfortunately, that was a there are a lot of people who have that mark on their resume because of do this or we'll kill you yeah i will say that i mean it is a shame but you know what i and you know don't take this the wrong way folks but it doesn't surprise me because she does look very aryan if you will in the sense of the kind of kind of woman that you know a reef and stall would want to shoot or you know when it exactly. came to those yeah. kind of those kind of people so yeah i could see that yeah yeah reef and stall was another one it's like film is in a good light or see ya you know we we talked about that a little bit with mccarthyism in film in the united states where it's it's like you you name names or you never work again and i mean it's a little it's a little easier to judge when it's like okay your job or freedom as opposed to your life or you know the the or the this the horrible cause so it you know if if uh judgment in nuremberg is to believe a lot of people did stuff they really didn't want to unfortunately just to just to make it out alive because they didn't leave the country fast enough unfortunately but yeah that is that is disturbing and you know hopefully my theory about it is right and she wasn't all like yeah let's make this propaganda movie let's do it i'm all in hopefully not i hope not 
Mm. So I didn't. I didn't see anything about her her willingness or unwillingness. All I saw was that she that she made an appearance in it. Yeah, yeah. But Gustav von. I'm going to see if I can pronounce this correctly. Wangenheim, who plays Thomas Hutta. He was 26 years old when he did this movie. He devoted himself passionately to communism. And he and his wife actually had to flee Germany. And they lived for a while in the Soviet Union. And oh, wow. politics became his thing much more than acting did. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the There were a lot of people in this movie that did this movie. And that's kind of it. Some of that's talkies. Some of that's... Germany, some of that's like you said, political choices. So this is um the only other person that I know from this movie that I've seen in other things is Granak. Even Max Shrek, I don't know other things. I've never seen him in anything else. <laughs> well, he was a virtual unknown when he did this. I think he only had a small handful of credits on his resume when he signed on yeah. for this one. Yeah, he this is another name that became a household name thanks to a monster movie. You know, he's he's yeah. A Bella Lugosi or a Boris Karloff. I don't know if I would say a Christopher Lee because I feel like Christopher Lee would have would have still been Lord Summers Isle. <laughs> <Even if he's laughs> yeah, there are names we know because they were monsters in monster movies, and he's he's probably the first. Yeah, and he only he passed away only I think fourteen years after this movie was made, yeah. so he yeah, didn't have he much like, of a chance to. He was like in his mid fifties, and he had a massive heart attack, and so. Mm. That is if, you know, if you don't think he's able, <laughs> <laughs> if you don't think he's offered able. Yeah, that's what happened to him. Sure. <laughs> and it is interesting how much the camera loves uh, Gustav von Wagenheim. I mean, he's a very handsome lad, you know, don't get me wrong. But I mean, it's interesting how much this movie almost seems just to very much show you this is our like, almost handsome hero before kind of, you know, on screen heroes were a thing if you will kind of like you know the the male protagonist being the heartthrob if you will and i'm the impression i got is almost like more now saying we're going to make gustav like the 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 heartthrob for the for the german gals and guys out there so that was that was that was fun that's what they did in silent movies though because when you don't have a lot of dialogue you have to rely on visual and so that's when you have the handsome people are the heroes and the creepy looking people are the brutes and the villains. And that's a that's why things that's why things like this are so good for a silent film or like a Phantom of the Opera, where it's all about everyone hates the Phantom because he's deformed. Same thing, Quasimodo, same thing. This lifetime of being banished because you're weird looking and then it driving you insane is perfect fodder for silent movie because you can't. You know, you don't have a lot of dialogue to let some, I mean, with, you know, with Quasimodo a little bit, he's very, you know, he is very sweet and you do feel sorry for him because he is mistreated. But at the same time, you're like, I think he's out of Esmeralda's League. I mean, you still have that in the back of your head because that's what we've been taught so much that beauty is heroism and ugliness is villainy. Even in something like Snow White, where you have this beautiful queen, well, she turns into one of the ugliest, scariest witches you've ever seen on, on film. That trope really lends itself to silent filmmaking because you don't have a lot of other avenues to prove that someone's a, a villain other than angry eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> yes. If you don't mind, I actually want to go back to 2000's Shadow of the Vampire. Has either one of you seen it? Yep. That was um, my first date with my husband. Oh, really? So, yeah. Yeah. That was my first date with my husband. So I uh, didn't remember much of it when I first saw it because I was like, oh, my God, I'm here with this guy. So, um, again, I like I said, I love a good conspiracy theory. And that conspiracy theory of 
Max Shrek is so terrifying because he actually is a vampire in real life. I think that's a, a great story. And that movie did a really good job of showing you what silent filmmaking was like and something that I don't think we really saw very much until even again, until we saw Hugo, until you saw Scorsese's Hugo, just the how different the filmmaking was and how few people you needed <laughs> to make a movie because there were no there were no sound people. The cameras were small. The film cans were small. You, you had, you know, a lot of it was lighting. A lot of it relied on natural lighting and from like a filmmaking standpoint, I think it's fascinating as well. And I love the, I love the concept of like, who, who, who found this guy? Did you hire him? I don't know. Where, where'd he come from? <laughs> this this mysterious <laughs> main character actor and just really playing off the urban legends of this movie. Because I think the urban legends probably are what kind of kept this movie alive. Like, hey, I have a copy of that movie with that guy that's like really a bloodsucker. You want to watch it? Like that probably, that probably happened. Like people probably pirated this movie for those reasons. Oh, yeah. And then you have to love the back and forth also between like John Malkovich and Willem Dafoe. I mean, it oh, is yeah. so good. I mean, and, you know, it's one of those parts that Willem Dafoe is kind of almost born to play. I mean, you know, we, you and I, Zan and Rachel, we talked of course about Platoon and how against cast Willem was 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 put, portrayed in that. This is the kind of things that you used to see Willem Dafoe doing, you know, be it the Green right. Goblin, be it Count Orlock, be it, you know, what all these villainous characters. So it's fantastic. Yeah, when you see Willem Dafoe in something like Platoon, you're like, when's the other shoe going to drop? When are we going to find out that he's the bad guy? And when he's when he's not, it's surprising. Yeah, he's he's really wonderful in that movie. The makeup job is fantastic in that movie. Yeah, Willem Dafoe and John Malkovich. Like, how I mean, how did this movie not make bajillion dollars with those two actors? And exactly. Willem Dafoe was nominated for supporting actor, which I don't get. I think that was about as much recognition as the film got. It certainly was not a summertime blockbuster or a uh, or a major awards contender that holiday season. So it just sort of flew under the radar. And I guess it was just one of those films that's a cult classic for movie lovers, people who would be familiar with all of the references that it makes to filmmaking yeah. techniques, like he was saying. Yeah, exactly. It was it was a weird one because. Chris and I started dating like in like in March of 2001. So this movie had been out for a while, came out like the very end of the year. It came out the very end of December. It was one of those where there are those there are those movies. Yeah, there was a makeup. I was I, I was looking it up because I thought there was a makeup award and there was a makeup nomination. It didn't win, but there was a nomination for makeup. It's one of those movies where I think the studio or the producers had higher hopes for it and they shove it out before the year's over so it can be a contender for the Oscar season. But when you shove something out between Christmas and New Year's, no one sees it. That's a very sleepy time for movies. Like after Christmas and before Valentine's Day is a very, very sleepy time for people. It's crappy weather. It's not holiday movies. It's not summer blockbuster. It's not romantic comedies that you can do at Valentine's Day. It's not horror movies you can do, you know, in the fall. Kids are back in school. I mean, not like kids are rushing to see this horror movie about a silent horror movie. But yeah, it's a sleepy time. It's a sleepy time for movies. And to, to shove something out like that with the expectation that an Oscar might happen, I think is I, I don't want to say that this movie wasn't spectacular, but I think it has to be something more original. This movie was it was a movie about a movie. I think what it did for a lot of people was make them want to see this original movie. But they weren't like going back. It wasn't like a Titanic where people saw it five times. <laughs> they saw this movie once and they said, oh, we should we should go to the library and find that uh, Nosferatu movie. 
I think it renewed people's interest in the original, but it didn't renew their interest to go see this multiple times. So I think so, too. I think it was very much, you know, Elias marriage kind of literally saying, I love this movie. And so I want to do a, mo- a film about this. I mean, it, one could maybe almost make the argument is kind of like what Tim Burton did with Ed Wood. And then people just wanted to go and see Edward films as much as Edward is a great film. Yeah. But it makes me think of that. Like when I saw Edward the first time, I'm like, oh, now I want to go and check out Edward's filmography just to see what this guy got up to. Right. Absolutely. But like the, the, the thing about Edward was that it came out during Halloween season. And That's it was right. Better targeted. Yes. Yeah. It was a little bit more targeted, whereas this came out December 29th, 2000. So everybody's recovering from Christmas and getting ready for New Year's. I think the only film that succeeded for, you know, to do something so kind of out of character was uh, Science of the Lambs coming out on Valentine's Day. That was pretty much the only time that really worked. <laughs> no, well, that's, that's the thing. It's like Valentine's Day, people, people want to go out. People want to leave the house for Valentine's Day. So you get, I don't know, I'd think of that as a date movie. You know, oh, Jonathan Demi. Okay, let's go see the new Jonathan Demi movie. <laughs> So that's at least during a time when people are like leaving the house. And then, of course, they're getting together later. Like, yeah, Bill and I saw this cannibal movie for Valentine's Day. It's really good. You got to go see it. And then, of course, people are reading the book again. So, yeah, December 29th is not a good time. It's a it's a let's shove this out and hope we get an Oscar nomination. That's what that is. Yeah. And I don't even know if I would have heard of Shadow of the Vampire if I had not been working at the time at a blockbuster video. Because it was not a mainstream movie, at least not around here, it wasn't. You didn't see it at your local multiplex. It was playing in more of the. It was playing in more of the independent cinemas, more of the you know the so-called ad house cinemas. We saw it at an AMC, but it was the AMC that was by Ohio State, so it was like college kids. So it was sort of like the mm. multiplex that multiplex that got a couple of the art films. There is an art house, a really wonderful art house theater. Um, called the uh, Gateway Film Center on Ohio State's campus now, uh, but that wasn't there at the time. So there was a um, there were art house theaters, but they were you needed a car. Like if you went to if you went to Ohio State, you needed a car. Now there's an art house theater on the east side of town over by Capital University, and that's still there that you could walk to. But if you were if you were in school without a car, that AMC was the theater you got to. It would get some of the higher profile <laughs> independent movies. Well, I'm curious then at this point, Frank, I mean, uh, we, you know, we knew you said you were working at the Blockbuster when this came out. Did you get a, do you, to your memory? Do you recall our people renting this film? I really don't. I wish I could say differently, but right. it did not go flying off the shelves. Oh, shame. I miss Blockbuster. That was where we, we got we were able to get Oreos over here in Italy before they became a thing. Really? Yeah. Interesting. That's I would go to Blockbuster to rent video games and stuff and movies, but before mm-hmm. Oreos went mainstream in Italy, you could only get them at Blockbuster. Like, here we have the American snacks. So that's oh. where they had Oreos amongst the flavored popcorn and what have you. So uh, okay. yeah, that's where I first I first met Oreos. Well, that's a wonderful memory right there. <laughs> yes. Yummy. I have one last question. Favorite shots from the film. For whatever reason, whether it provoked fear, whether it provoked reassurance, or if it was a moment that made you feel connected to a character, uh, I'll tell you my two favorite shots, uh, Zan, you mentioned it already, it's when you see the shadow of the hand, of Nosferatu's hand, going for Ellen's hat, and then you see him squeeze it into a fist, you know, her, mo- you know, her moment of death. The way that they choreographed that, as strange of a word as this is, given the context of the scene, for me, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. 
it could have been any number of reasons why this was the particular way they staged it. But whatever the reason was, doesn't matter because it worked. And they have that moment in the film that is the perfect climactic punch in the gut. You see the sacrifice she's making for the town, for her husband, and the visual of her hat getting, you know that it's getting squeezed, maybe not physically, but with his yeah. hand over her. It's just a very Frankenstein's creature moment. It really is. And it, there is such beauty to it because just that simple lighting effect that we all noticed as kids that sometimes when we look at our shadow, we're really tall. Sometimes we're really short and sometimes we can look longer. And that whole idea of his hand going to the light, and that just that's just what makes the fingers look longer. It's like the lighting does that. And so he goes and he goes to grab her and then his fingers get longer just from the lighting. But that makes him more supernatural. That makes him more of a monster that he has these abilities to transform into this monster. Yeah, that's a that's an absolutely gorgeous shot. And I know it's cliche, but I love him walking up the stairs. Another, another yeah. scene. I really love him walking up the stairs. I love when we see, <laughs> I'm just going to call him Rainfield, when we see Knock. I love watching Nock try to catch mosquitoes and I love Orlock walking through the streets with a coffin under his arm. And I don't know if that's the phantasm fan in me where I know that like, okay, that's really heavy. This is a supernatural being, <laughs> but just that idea where he's like, I got to have my dirt with me. I got to carry my dirt. <laughs> that's, that's where I got to go. But yeah, I do. I really love the, the, the scene on the stairs and you, know, you get, all of those really iconic scenes of him on the stairs, him reaching reaching out to Ellen, and the scene of him, you know, coming up from you know from lying down to totally vertical in his coffin. That's all at the end of the movie. So this movie really pays off with those, with those things. But yeah, there, there's just something so beautiful, like you said, and something so impressive of a medium that at this point is like 20 years old, 20, 25 years old, and commercially only about 10 years old, if that, you know, commercially speaking, you know, because like, you know, we, we had someone like George Melier before the war and then the war happens and there's no, in Europe, there's no resources for film. You know, films were being melted down to create resources for people. So this post-war brand new medium, but somebody's really good at filming. It's really hard to film a shadow. When you get a shadow, you're like, damn, I got it. This is fantastic. We'll never get this again. You know, people talk about that, trying to get the perfect sunset or the perfect shadow. It's like light is only there for when it's there. And when it's gone, it's gone. And the fact that this early in this medium, they were able to do that, I think is so incredibly impressive. I very much agree. I mean, to add to the ones that you guys already mentioned, I think... Uh... One, the first time we actually meet Orlock, I think, is a, is a great shot. I mean, because very much an establishing shot of, you know, this is the guy, this is who we're going to be afraid of. And this fact that he's standing there alone in the middle of this castle is just so evocative, at least to me it was when I was like, yeah, that's the dude. We're going to be seeing a lot more of him. So I really like that. And then, of course, when the rats come out from, uh, from, from the, the, the ship's hold, I think is also the only potent. thing left alive on that ship are the rats. Mm -hmm. That's exactly yeah. it. And, uh, and I suppose also it played to the fact that I am not a particular fan of rodents. And um, whenever I kind of see water rats around here, they just disgust me so much. Heck, I'm sure there are people out there who love water rats. I, to me, they're vermin and they're disgusting, but especially when you see that long tail, it's like, ugh. not to mention, 
uh, when I would actually walk uh, to the um, the underground, I'd walk down this the, this literal road, and you'd literally see these carcasses of these water rats lying aside the street. It's going to probably ruin your morning when you've just kind of had you know you're like, of the way to work you know to work or to or to whatever. And you're like yeah, so it's not pretty, but yeah, you just feel. I think the I mean I, I think that's more, more than I was trying to make us feel is. These disgusting creatures that bring the plague and bring horrible things. And that was literally what made me feel like, oh, no, get those rats away. It's kind of like Rachel with uh, insects, with, uh, with the locusts in Jurassic yeah, World. Dominion. <laughs> I w- I'm that way with rodents. I can't stand rats and I can't stand mice. I'm, I'm, that, I'm that way with bats. I'm terrified of bats. Everybody's like, they're so cute. And I'm like, well, actually, what I'm terrified of is rabies from the sky. Right. So yeah, you know, you'll see like a giant, like oh, oh, look at this flying fox. Nope, nope. We're just I mean, I love Batman, but those are rats with wings. Those so no thank you. Bring, no thank you. There's just one more shot that I do want to add to the list. Now that I think about it, I can't believe I have not mentioned it yet, and that's the phantom carriage. Yeah. The Phantom Carriage as it's going through the woods. And I've seen a couple of different accounts of how they achieved that effect. I read in one source that they they reversed the negative. And then another source I heard was that they draped it in white cloth, which I don't quite understand. I always find it fascinating that that particular shot, for whatever reason, is really sped up. I mean, I don't know how many frames per second that is, but it's not the usual 24. No, it's it's sped up and it's almost like you expect Yakety Sax to be playing in the background. Of it. <laughs> and there's yeah, there's something about the fact that it's sped up that makes it half comedic and half really unsettling. Like it, it's half funny because, again, you're sort of expecting this, you know, Benny Hill Scooby-Doo thing to go on. But then at the same time, you're like, these supernatural things want to get some shit done. Anytime there's any sort of effect that still plays well and does really well and you think about. Like I said, this is the first like 10 years of commercial cinema. That's that's so impressive. I mean, necessity really is the mother of invention. And you can you can make moving pictures kind of do anything you want them to if you work with it enough. It's it's very cool. Very cool. Made me kind of think of the saying needs must when the devil's dry when the devil drives. You know, when you really don't when it's like that kind of idea of this is something demonic, which is going like total total speed, etc. But yeah, at first I was a little bit thrown off, like, why is this going so fast? Like, oh, I get it. And then the whole the, the musical cue, I think, definitely helps as well when it comes to just adding that yeah. level of creepiness for sure. As long as you're playing the right soundtrack if you're watching it on DVD, because most of the yes. DVD editions have different <laughs> different optional scores, shall we say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I watched I watched uh, the restoration that they have on um, Shudder currently. I don't remember who did the score for that, but it's 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 pretty good. I will suggest, you know, speaking of funny things, folks, uh, this is because of Zan, actually. When we uh, reviewed Hamlet from way back when, try and listen to it with Sting playing in the background, and it's hilarious because the guy literally looks Lawrence like... Lawrence Olivier Sting. looks like Sting. He's all <laughs> blonde and, like, black bike clothing. He looks... I, li- I literally watched like him. Fortress around your heart, Sting. I mean, (laughs) I literally watched the "To Be or Not to Be" speech. I muted it and put "Every breath you take," and I was in stitches. He looks like Sting. Oh, okay. I'm doing that. (laughs) I am doing that. (laughs) Hilarious. Oh, that is funny. Well, speaking of funny, uh, well, just one last thing is the some of the t- the dialogue, the title cards. When Count Orlock turns to Hutter and he says, "Your wife, she has such a lovely neck." 
I just remember that that elicited so much laughter when I saw it downtown in Boston. That line just got, it, it practically brought the house down, I remember. Who says that about a person? I mean, it's like, I mean, it's one thing to be all like, oh, dude, nice, you know, or, wow, your wife is lovely or that's a beautiful gown. But who's like, oh, wow, your wife has a lovely neck. It's like, thanks. Your wife has a lovely elbow. Like, who the hell says that? <laughs> It's, it's sort of like a uh, deus ex machina moment, I guess you could say, where it's like, okay, so Hutter obviously has no common sense and that he sees nothing strange about this supposed compliment, this, just, <laughs> which ostensibly so like, is Count Orlock being some kind of a gentleman. Yeah, he's he's so kind of like sheltered, you know, and, and probably just so blinded by love. Like, well, yes, she certainly does. It's like, dude, no, don't, no, people should not be talking about your wife like that. No, no. No. I guess Tarantino has a foot fetish or has a neck fetish, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I want to thank you both very much for taking the time out of your evening to be here. I really appreciate it. And if there's anything else that you wanted to say about the film or if there's anything else you wanted to say about your projects or any final thoughts about anything, really. Uh, well, I mean, personally, Frank, thank you first off so much for having us a second time. You know, it was a joy and a pleasure. We look forward to, I'm, I'm sure I, I speak for, for Zan and also Rachel, who's not here today, uh, having you back in the Gold Standard Theatre next year. For sure, very excited about that. And just thank you so much for the opportunity. And, you know, uh, anytime you want us, we're, I'm sure more than happy to come back. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you so much for having us. And thank you for helping keep classic cinema alive. You know, anytime we watch it, anytime we talk about it, even just the fact that I streamed this, that's one more number for people who will watch a silent movie. So I'm all for anything that keeps classic cinema alive. It has to be kept alive for future generations because, like I said before, cinema is, this is what I tell my film class all the time, cinema really is a time capsule. Yeah. And again, you can you can say the same about everything ranging from photography to painting to and you can music. You can say the same about really any art form, but cinema, maybe it's just because I'm partial to it, but cinema really does have this quality about it that just gives it this it gives it really a universal appeal because there's something in it for all tastes. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want if you want to learn more about or if you want to see more of a country you've never been in, there's international cinema to check out. Right. Yeah, you know, for and things like oh good. Chris and I have talked about this a lot that the it's so hard to get the time right after the fact, but you'll go back and you'll watch something. You'll be like, OK, that's what we really looked like in the 80s or that's what kids in the 70s actually looked like or that was the 90s. That's the hair we had. And it, anything, you know, anything culturally speaking, the sights, the sounds, just who was popular at the time. Kids these days, they have no idea who Dabney Coleman is, but we couldn't get away from him in the 80s. Like he was such a he was like in every movie, you know, and there are those people like that that were just in every movie at the time. It tells you so much about the culture surrounding it, even outside of the movie, what, you know, just it, there's politics to be talked about with it. And, you know, more and it's more of a visceral experience than, say, just a novel, you know, yes, a novel, you have your imagination, but with a film, you have almost like a historical record of this is what things looked like. Something like uh, Midnight Cowboy. I mean, it's a weird movie about a guy who, th who thinks he's going to rocket to fame as a prostitute, but it's a great time capsule of what New York was like in, in uh, the, the late 60s. I mean, aside from the story, it's a time capsule of that. Very true. And I think, I mean, to, to add to all that, I mean, Frank, I love the, the premise that you give when it comes to this podcast of yours, you know, when it comes to or quoting Lauren Bacall 
and it's not an old movie unless you if you haven't seen it but i think that sums it up perfectly because you know like you often say you know if you're worried about talking about a movie that's a million years old remember what lauren bacall said and i think that perfectly sums it up that uh you know i i've learned this through gold standard myself I'm like oh i'm watching a movie from the 1930s how the heck am i going to relate to this and surprisingly enough you can relate to it you know even though you're like oh wow this movie wasn't even i wasn't even born when this movie came out but yeah, the human experience is a human experience. It was like I was saying before with not censoring movies, even, even the shameful parts of them. We need that time capsule. We need to remember that we were like that as a people and that we need to rise above it. And film does that for us. Yeah. No, you cannot reinvent the past to make the present more comfortable. Right. Absolutely. And you shouldn't. You you absolutely shouldn't. You shouldn't. You know, once once you're comfortable, then you're complacent. And we all know what right. happens. And it's a, it's a slap in the face to anybody who was negatively impacted. Any, any victims, any fighters for change, anything just to pretend like it didn't happen is uh, foolish. It's, 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 that's, a, that's a foolish endeavor. And that goes hand in hand with everything that we were talking about with Nosferatu as well, with the political activism on the part of some of the, ca- some of the actors and being a time capsule of, as you said, Zan, post and pre-war, post mm-hmm. and pre-war Germany. So The isolation of post and pre-war Germany is something we should talk about because we, we saw what it bred. And it's like that old cliche, if... You don't learn from the past, you're doomed to repeat it. Exactly. Well, fortunately, we have films like Nosferatu and Shadow of the Vampire and a lot of the other films we've mentioned to to keep history alive. So I say we just keep on pushing forward with that. Yep. Fun restoring. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you both again and have a great night. And I am really looking forward to collaborating with you again in the future. We look forward to it. Can't wait. Thank you very much. That was my conversation with Zan and Nick. Be sure to give their shows a listen, and thanks to them again. And with that, the poll and the trivia segments are not going the way of Prana Studio. So let's jump right into those as we begin to wrap up. The question for this episode, number 67, asked you which you'd want on your side against the other, Count Orlok or Count Dracula? And from the Facebook group Silver Screeners, two-thirds of the votes went to Dracula, with the remaining third to Orlok. And over on Twitter, 57% of the votes went to Dracula, with Orlok again trailing behind with the remaining 43. So that means that the majority of the people who voted would much prefer to have Dracula on their side against the German expressionist vampire himself, Count Orlok. Thanks to everyone who voted. These polls are meant to be silly fun, all geared towards generating interest in each upcoming episode, so thank you for taking part in it. And don't forget to keep your eyes open on my socials for the next poll. Just check out the Silver Screeners group on Facebook, or you can follow me on Twitter at FilmBuff1974, as well as Instagram at FrankMandosa1974, or you can simply email SilverScreenersPod at gmail.com. And lastly, it's time for the trivia segment. In each episode, there is a different trivia question that is directly, and sometimes indirectly, related to the movies or the cast and crew involved. You're all invited to take part in it at any time. And if you're a creator, if you write music, if you design websites, if you're a podcaster, a writer, if you go all Sinatra and you're a puppet, a popper, a pirate, a poet, a pawn, and a king, if you've been up, down, and over, and out, I'm always happy to give your stuff a shout-out. People help people, and that's that. As always, I don't want to take the liberty of announcing both first and last names in case it makes anyone feel uncomfortable, which is why I always do first name and last initial. But if you say otherwise when you send in your answer, then full names it is. 
you get a shout-out, as well as a movie-related meme sent your way with a personalized greeting. Don't worry about timing either. It does not matter what episode you're listening to, however far back or however recent. Answer any trivia question at any time. You will get your meme and your shout-out. So last time, Chris from the Movie Psycho Podcast joined me for a look at 1951's The Thing from Another World, as well as the John Carpenter-directed remake, 1982's The Thing, celebrating its 40th anniversary. And the question was, Dean Cundey, Carpenter's director of photography, was nominated for an Oscar for Best Cinematography for his work in what 1988 movie that blends animation with live action, has a rabbit accused of murder as the main character who's married to a sultry temptress voiced by Kathleen Turner, who says, I'm not bad, I'm just drawn that way. And the answer is, who framed Roger Rabbit? In making up this episode's royal court of Silver Screener's trivia are the following in no particular order. A new listener and first-time trivia player, Z, that's Z-E-E. Great to have you join in, Z, and thank you. Thank you for listening to the episode, and thank you for playing the trivia. There's also my buddy Chris from the Movie Psycho podcast, the very same who appeared on last episode. Be sure to check his show out if you haven't yet. And rounding out this week's group is one of this episode's guests, DJ Nick himself. Thanks to all of you. You're deeply appreciated. Keep your eyes open for those memes, and thank you for the support. And to anyone else kind enough to be listening to this right now, why not join in playing the trivia next time? Nothing to lose, and a shout-out and a cool meme to gain. And why not go ahead and begin with this episode's question? Nosferatu is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year, 2022. The Bela Lugosi version of Dracula was released in 1931, nine years later. The 1992 film version, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, starred Winona Ryder, Gary Oldman as Count Dracula, and who in the leading role. You may know him from such action blockbusters as Speed, sci-fi fantasy thrillers like The Matrix Trilogy, or even goofy comedy like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Send your answers on in, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments on anything from today's episode, or any episode that you've listened to, just hit me up on my socials. Once again, that's FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, the film group Silver Screen is on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or just email silverscreenispod at gmail.com. And that brings episode 67 to a close. As I say at the conclusion of every episode, big thanks once again for listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Please feel free to give Silver Screeners a rating on Apple, iTunes, or wherever you're listening to your podcast from. It does help to boost the show's visibility in these platforms, which only means that more people can discover it. Catch you next time. My name is Frank, wishing you good health, good autumn weather, good movies, and a happy Halloween. And until next time, keep on screening. And I leave you now with the soothing sounds of Nosferatu's leading lady, Ellen Hutter upon receiving the compliment on her lovely neck, as she suddenly realizes what Count Orlok has in mind. Thank you.